You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, open our eyes to what you would have us to see in your letter to the Hebrews. Uh, for Lord, it's also a letter to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we finally have arrived at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, I'm not really going to go back over what we've already traveled uh, this far, uh, but I'll I'll tie it in so that this class can stand alone. In fact, this class is going to stand more with the next one that I do uh, rather than what we've done heretofore. But Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, if you want to follow along, it's page 1002 in your pew Bibles. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, that is God, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works." And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying, through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall into the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so up till now, I am dipping a little bit back in chapter 3. But what he's talking about is out and out disobedience. Uh, He's not talking, uh, and I say he, we don't know who it is, but I'm just going to say he. Uh, He's not talking about backsliding. He's not talking about struggling with sin, but he's actually talking about apostasy. Uh, The word apostates, uh, the Greek word that is used, uh, actually means to rebel. That's the word he keeps using here about the rebellion in the wilderness, where there's um, uh, a lot of grumbling and mumbling. And uh, of course, there would be multiple rebellions in the wilderness against God. I believe the number is seven. But he's talking about those who had heard the good news. This is actually something that's well worth looking at. Verse two, for good news came to us just as to them, as a little footnote, that means what? That those who were wandering in the wilderness heard the gospel. Well, they didn't hear explicitly about Jesus but they saw shadows and types of it throughout the wilderness. So anytime someone says, well, we really didn't know the gospel until Jesus Christ came, that's not true. The gospel is just as much the gospel in the Old Testament as it is in the New, except in the New, it's much clearer and definitive in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Just as a little 
uh, aside and by way of actually witnessing too uh, if you have uh, friends who uh, struggle with that. But he's talking about a spirit of rebellion, and this spirit of rebellion lurks inside all of us, but with some, this germ grows into something very big. Uh, I, I try not to stereotype my children, but I feel like some of them are just a little bit more rebellious than others, and I can already see you're going to be a problem. Uh, and, uh, but in the same way, it seems with God's people that even though the spirit of rebellion wor- lurks in all of us, that for many or for some, it tends to grow very big. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that there is the possibility of apostasy or rebellion for the Christian. And this is the question I want to tackle today. Uh, Not an issue of... Would you find Catherine Jacob? She's got her microphone on, and before she starts spewing forth profanity, we don't want to embarrass her. Uh, So thank you. You laugh. Uh, but uh, we had one clergy person here who will go unmentioned who got in trouble for saying something on the radio once um, and then was very defiant and said that they stood by what they said. Um, I won't tell you who that is. You can guess. You know he had. <laughs> yes, but I don't want to know which one. So. <laughs> All right, button it up. Okay. The, um, no, there's no turning it off back there. Thanks, though, David. Um, can Christians fall away from the truth? Now, I hesitate to say Christians, but because the language that the author of Hebrews uses, are there those who have heard the good news, who have taken hold, seemingly taken hold of it, and it seem to be committed believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, can they fall away? That's the question we're going to talk about today. Again, we're not talking about struggling with sin. We're not talking about backsliding. What we're talking about is out-and-out rebellion against God and His Word, which we'll talk about what that means. Uh, The Bible talks about it in several places in in different ways, and one of the places that I often go to is 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, where John is addressing the issue of those who are rebellious within the life of the church. John says this, they, that is those who had apostatized, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. And so what John is saying, this of us, he's talking about the of us being the disciples of Jesus Christ. Obviously, Emily failed. Emily went out of us, but clearly is not one of us, uh, because she has failed in her task. Uh, But this all of us, or of us, is uh, meant to indicate those who are genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. And people may be in the visible church for years, but eventually they might move out because their faith was not genuine. Now, at this point, I'm trying to strike a little bit of fear into your hearts. What John is saying is that there is a point at which there are people who will leave the church. And I don't mean you move one church to another because you like the youth ministry better or something like that. I'm not talking about that at all. But I'm talking about people who once maybe even fondly looked back on their baptism or their conversion 
now look back at it with disgust and want to brush it aside. And they've completely left the church. They went out from us because they were never of us, which is what John is saying, is that they were never a part of us in the first place. Now, all of this harkens back to Jesus' parable of the sower, doesn't it? Remember, the man went about sowing seeds. Some of it fell on hard, rocky ground. Uh, Some of it fell on shallow soil and sprung up really quickly but was scorched by the earth. And then some of it took deep root uh, and uh, grew unto fruition. And the question for all of us as Christians, and I think the author of Hebrews would encourage us to have this question, what kind of seed am I? I think there's actually a healthy bit of us that cries out and worries, and I think, again, this is a good thing, what if I'm the one who is choked out by weeds? What if I'm the one who's in shallow soil that has just sprung up? And the reason why the author of Hebrews would say that's a good thing is because he keeps using these exhortations and admonitions. Now, keep that in mind. We're going to get back to that in a minute. This is not the only answer that the New Testament gives, uh, but the reality is that there are those who seem to be committed believers that either lose all interest or actually try to undermine the faith. And in chapter 3 the author of Hebrews tells us how to guard against that. Preventative measures. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And as I said then, if the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95, who was hearkening back to the day of the, of the Israelites in the wilderness, then that must mean that as I read it today, that it applies to me in the same way that it applied to the Israelites, to those who are reading Psalm 95, and to those who first received this letter in Hebrews chapter 3. And when I read it, I think, well, I'm not hardening my heart. Very few of us actually know when we're intentionally hardening or unintentionally hardening our hearts. Uh, The thing about hardening of a heart is that it's a gradual process. I had a conversation with a guy just a couple weeks ago, and uh, and he came in to to tell me something, and he said, uh, and it was very disappointing news, and he said to me, well, this this was a long time coming. He's right. Now, it would have been really great if he had told me a long time ago, Uh, but what had happened? The hardening was a long time coming. It took months and months and months to finally get him to a place where he made the decision that he had made. Hardening of hearts doesn't happen overnight. It happens as a process. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, so today, check your hearts. Today, check your hearts. The author of um, the little epistle to J- of Jude, have you all ever seen that? It's right before Revelation. It's teensy-tiny. It's only one little chapter, but it's well worth reading in one go. Uh, Jude writes this. Jude, uh, verse 1, and then I'm going to go to verse 24. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And then verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. What is Jude saying? For those who are in Christ Jesus, this is echoed by Hebrews, 
It's also echoed by Second uh, John. For those who are in Christ Jesus, God is going to keep you from stumbling. And yet, it's not an unhealthy thing to do an evaluation of our own, our own lives. But what the, Hebrews, what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us is that this falling away or this state of faith or this apostasy is not prescriptive. It's not an issue of if you do this, then this will happen, but actually is descriptive. It's not an issue of if you come to saving faith in Jesus, as long as you do all this stuff, you're going to be fine. That's action consequence, and that runs completely counter to the gospel. Because if that's the case, we're all doomed, aren't we? Because we often will say that you can't earn your salvation. But the other side of that, which is just as true, is you can't unearn it. It's a gift. It's given to you. It can't be taken away. I tell the story, Lauren and I, we have a child who is very precocious, just one. Just kidding, they're all precocious, I guess. Uh, but one, and we had given her a little trinket or something that we had bought, and it was kind of expensive, uh, while we were out of town once, and she was mistreating it, and so I put it up in the top of the closet, and of course, she went looking for it, and she finally came up to me and she said, Daddy, have you seen my trinket? And I said, well, yes, Lily, it's in the top of the closet. Well, can you get it for me? No, I cannot get it for you because you don't know how to treat it. And so until you learn how to treat this gift that your mother and I have given you, I'm not going to give it back. And she began to cry and she looked me right in the eyes and she said, but you gave it to me. It was a gift. Parent fail. <laughs> right? She has a better handle on the gospel than I do. She's right. If it really is a gift, then it doesn't come with strings attached. As I said in the sermon this morning, God's call on us is to repent and believe. And for those who give themselves over to Christ Jesus, God is going to keep you. And the way that God keeps you is he actually pricks your heart so that you do strive. You do work to stay in Christ Jesus. You do try constantly to awaken yourself to his goodness and to his mercy. And so as a Christian, when I hear um, things like, uh, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, or when I see uh, these other people uh, falling away, I don't think, oh, they just were never of us. Even though that's true, what I think is, but for the grace of God goes me, goes I. What grammar is that? Is it I? Sure? Anyway. Anyway, that's going to be on the quiz. But for God's grace, I would be going in that future direction. And the reason why the author of Hebrews uses this language is because he sees life as a walk, as a race, as progress, all of it moving toward, all of it moving toward heaven. And what he's warning is that we not fall out of the race. And so in chapter 4, he uses a number of exhortations. The first one is he says, let us fear lest any of you should have seemed to have failed to reach it. That is, uh, that rest. Verse 11, let us strive to enter that rest. Verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. 
And then verse 16, which we won't get to, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now, this whole argument that that the author is using in Hebrews 4 is incredibly complicated, and I'm not going to unpack it all today. But suffice it to say, what he's talking about for the believer is is a promise to enter a rest. And so in spite of the Israelite rebellion, God did bring his people through the wilderness, although those that he originally had taken in the wilderness, not almost all of them but two, didn't enter into the rest of Canaan, the promised land. Remember, Moses was only allowed to see it. And if you've actually ever been to that area of Israel and looked over the Jordan River, the only way that it looks good is if you've been in the desert for 40 years. It's not an attractive, it's right at the Dead Sea, so nothing's growing there. It's very brown, it's very dusty, it's not a sight to behold. And yet, that was the land that God had promised them. And in fact, Joshua led them and they reached that promised land. And there were those, the author here tells us, that thought that they had arrived. This was the ultimate culmination of God's promises. He's given us a homeland, and then that homeland would develop into a nation state, which would give way to the building of two temples, and the Israelites would finally have a homeland. But that, according to Hebrews, is not the goal of human history. Since therefore, for if Joshua had given them rest, this is verse 8, God would not have spoken of another day later on. If that was it... If that's all God was trying to do, then why did he continue to speak of another day later on? Picking up at verse uh, 11 through 13. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm not going to read that part. I'm very sorry. Uh, 4, 13, I'm sorry, 11, yes, 11, I'm losing my mind here. 11, 13 through 16. I've got Catherine Jacob's voice in my ear. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The ultimate end of what God is leading his people to is not a geographic land, but a heavenly city, a heavenly home. Abraham and Moses were not looking to Canaan as the fulfillment of the spiritual promises, but they were looking for this rest that Hebrews talks about. For if Joshua had given them rest, over and over again, talks about this rest, which is heaven. And that's why the author of Hebrews is overwhelmed with the question, will you go to heaven with me? That's where all of this is leading. Do you have your mind set on your heavenly home? Are you ready to go? Now, when it says that on the Sabbath day, that, uh, that also that God rested from his works, what does that mean? What is the rest that the author of Hebrews is telling us? What is heaven going to be like? Was it that God on the seventh day said, I'm worn out, I need a break? No. 
In fact, here's a little Bible trivia. There is no indicator in Genesis that the seventh day has ever ended. It, ha it has no conclusion as every other day did. Just a, a little footnote. Well, what is the rest that he's talking about? Why does God rest? Well, the word rest here means the same thing as to enjoy. To enjoy all of his creation. To actually to be able to sit back and revel in his creation, in his handiwork. C.S. Lewis, during World War II, preached a lovely little sermon called The Weight of Glory at St. Mary's Church in Oxford. I'd like to read from, you, read from that sermon to you about this rest, this enjoyment. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or, bore, or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain us, but so it is. That's a beautiful little piece, isn't it? That God sees you and I as his handiwork and ultimately what he wants to do is to be able to enjoy you and for you to enjoy him for all of eternity. So heaven for us is going to be a time of rest, but it's not going to be us sitting on clouds strumming at harps. It's actually going to be us with God enjoying him as well as putting his creation to use and enjoying it ourselves. That's the picture that the author of Hebrews is painting. Now, this begs the question, so Andrew, are you telling me that really heaven is what it's all about and this life doesn't matter one bit. Well, it does matter, but our lives ought to be completely consumed by thoughts of heaven and by being with the Lord Jesus and what he's come to do. Here's a verse that you are familiar with, Matthew chapter 11, and maybe what we've just talked about will help you understand it a little bit better. Matthew 11, verses 28 and 30, through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, this is Jesus' promise to us here on earth right now, that you're going to catch glimpses of it. The rest that he promises is the enjoyment of heaven, even now. 
Now, as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, we see through a glass darkly. We don't see it in its totality. And yes, it is only glimpses. But when we take on the yoke of Jesus Christ, we actually have a foretaste of heaven. And when do we experience this? More often than not, we experience it when we're gathered together. Have you ever been on vacation with other Christian believers or spent any time with other believers or maybe even in Sunday worship or uh, any other occasion where you walk away and think, that was marvelous. That was just, that was so beautiful. And it's not the the pageantry of church, I hope. I I hope that it's something much more meaningful than that. Uh, One of the closest experiences I think that I've had to this was at a um, Sunday service at a primitive Baptist church in Boozy Creek, Tennessee. It's called the Boozy Creek Primitive Baptist Church. Wouldn't you love to have a t-shirt that said that? And um, there are lots of issues that I have with the Primitive Baptist. You can Wikipedia it and see what they believe. Uh, But what I saw were people who were in genuine fellowship with one another and genuinely loved one another. And there was a moment at which they'd been preaching all weekend long and really amazing food. And I was sitting in the pew and they said, there's one among us uh, who is uh, not uh, a primitive Baptist. And yet God has called this young man to the mission field of the Episcopal church. Well, at that point I knew it had to be me unless there was somebody else in the congregation, not likely. And they said, I wonder if you would come down and let all of us pray for you. And I went down and over 100 people gathered around me and prayed for me. And I was completely undone. It was compl- they didn't know me from Adam's house cat. And yet, why did they pray for me? Because I was their brother, right? And so I pray and I hope that you've been able to catch glimpses uh, of this here Uh, in uh, this uh, earthly life uh, as we continue to press on toward uh, heaven. But I want us to close by looking at some of the admonitions and exhortations that he gives us, these let us statements. Therefore, while the promise, this is verse 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. I mean, there is something known as healthy fear. I mean, I'll be honest with you. uh, My heart is uh, prone uh, to disobedience. I don't know about yours. Maybe yours isn't prone to disobedience. Maybe you do just fine. Um, But my heart is prone to disobedience. And even when it comes to sinning, I remember a couple years ago, The White Horse Inn, which is a wonderful uh, podcast. Uh, If you've not found that, you need to find it. And they went to a big Christian conference and they began interviewing, began to interview people on the street. And the question was, once saved, always saved. If you put your trust in Jesus, are you guaranteed salvation? And everyone said, yes. And then there was a follow-up question, but what about persistent sin? And you'd be shocked how many people started to change their answers. Oh, well, persistent sin. Yeah, you might, be, you might be in big trouble on that one. And I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, golly, which of my sins aren't persistent? Which of my sins are not willful? Then why do we behave that way? 
Why is our heart prone toward unbelief? We know it's because of the sin that dwells within us. But then why do we act upon it? Well, in my case, it's because of unbelief. It's because of unbelief. Not that I'm not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, but there are times when I think God's not going to do anything about it. Ultimately, he's just kind of a big fluffy grandpa, and I'll climb up in his lap. And so I began to behave and act in a way that stands contrary to what God would have me to do, and it's because of my own lack of belief. But praise God, he typically brings me right back to my knees within the shadow of the cross. When I was in college, I decided I'd had enough of the Christian life. I was done with it. I'd been a part of every campus fellowship, and uh, my family uh, had kind of gone off the rails, and I saw it as an opportunity for me. Um, I was one of those kids where I never went off the rails. I exercised my rebellion in other ways, but but I said, I'm going to go for it, and I'm going to live for me for a little bit. And as it might happen, uh, circumstance uh, provided uh, for me an opportunity. Uh, We went out to a bar that night in Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, there was a girl uh, who will go unmentioned because she may be listening to this right now. But let's just say, um, well, I'll just use her first name. Her name was Kat, and she she drove a Camaro convertible and had a license plate that said PER on it. So that's what we're dealing with here, folks. And she was not unattractive. And um, we were at the bar, and Kat said, hey, would you walk me home? I'd be delighted to walk you home. So we get back to her house, and she said, well, you want to come upstairs? And I said, yes, I definitely want to come upstairs. And as she opened the door, all of a sudden, it hit me like a thousand of bricks. And I just looked at her and said, I'm sorry. And I went home and fell in my bed and cried like a baby. What happened? God didn't let go of me. God pricked my conscience, and I responded to that. Now, that's not to say that that we're not going to have failures in in our lives, and there are going to be times when, in fact, uh, our desires are going to be acted upon in a way. Uh, But you can never get too far away from the cross where God isn't going to call you back. You can't earn his salvation, and therefore you cannot unearn it. And so as we struggle through this passage here in chapter 4, it's pretty tricky. But what the overarching message of the Bible is, is that once you're in the hand of Jesus, no one can snatch you out and you can't even get yourself out of it. You're in. You're in. And yet at the same time, uh, I pray that I never take that for granted and that I'm constantly uh, walking in fear, lest any of you should have seemed to have failed to reach it that I'm striving to enter that rest and that I'm holding fast to the confession that God has implanted in my heart. That's a lot. Questions, comments, concerns? Yes. When you first started, you said uh, something and you related to he this, speaking of scripture, and you said, I shouldn't say that. Well, everybody says that like it should say she. He means mankind, as I understand it. Yeah, I mean, take it or leave it. Well, however you want to hear it is fine. I mean, it, it, yeah. 
Let me just say this, because as I'm thinking about this to myself, the rebellion that is a, a sort of a litmus to see if somebody has fallen away from the faith, you notice, is not in terms necessarily of morality. So I would be very careful about judging somebody's Christian faith because they've done something that you consider to be immoral. I mean, think about the biblical witness. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and how did God describe him? A man after his own heart. And so the kind of rebellion that we're talking about, again, is not struggling with sin, moral failures. It is outright rebellion against God uh, in His Word, which seeks to undermine the Christian faith. So we're not talking morality. The father of rebellion, Satan. Right. Ezekiel 28.13 speaks of Satan being perfect, beautiful, until unrighteousness was found in him, and he sinned out of pride. Right. I guess I'm struggling with that idea of being in Christ. I guess, obviously, he wasn't in Christ from the beginning. Right. That whole idea of being perfect, full of wisdom. Yeah, I guess what I would say is I would almost compare it to a marriage relationship. I mean, that there are times in which you know, we, we can take for granted our spouse and just sort of put it on cruise control and think, well, they know that I, I, I love them. And, of course, we know that that is going to lead to a, a, a not-so-great place uh, when we, we do that. So when we do things for our husband or our wife, whether the husband's bringing home flowers or whether he's doing extra work around the house or the wife is doing something for him, they're not doing it to earn the love or even keep the love, uh, but they're doing it to out of joyful, out of the love. It's, it's a response uh, to the love. And so it's not just enough um, when we're in any sort of relationship to say, um, you know, we're in a relationship now, so I'm going to go away and do whatever I want to do, uh, but actually uh, to remain in that relationship and to see fruit born out of that relationship from love. Well, time is up. Go on. So next week, next week, so I, I hope that some of you are like, oh gosh, that was really something. Uh, just be aware that next week we're going to talk about the answer to what I've been talking about, the assurances that we have uh, that the author of Hebrews gives us in God's Word. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.